Hello and welcome to the APAC file, the joint bi-weekly podcast of Free Radio Free Liberty and the Wilson Center focusing on Pakistan in Afghanistan. I'm Mohammed Tahir, Free Radio Free Liberty's media manager and host of the APAC file podcast here in Washington, D.C. Fighting between the Taliban militants and the government forces continues around the country in Afghanistan. The latest news is that the Taliban are squeezing into the provincial capital of northern Saripul province after taking over the control of most of the districts in and around northern Afghanistan. However, initially starting from districts, in recent days the Taliban have intensified their pressure on major cities like Herat, Kandahar and particularly Helmand where the latest news is the fighting entered in or outskirts of the provincial capital Lashkarga. As Afghan forces resume bombardment of the Taliban positions there, sources say nine out of ten districts in Helmand have already fallen to the Taliban. So while the situation in Helmand remains critical, it seems the danger uh, on Herat kind of overturned. So with war ranging, millions of people are also on the move. With that, a new humanitarian crisis is also developing in the country. So, what's going on on the ground in those major cities beyond the headlines, what the Taliban militants are doing, how people and authorities are reacting, and what the future holds for Afghans, especially for those cities. To discuss all these, I'm joined by Maryam Suleiman Khil, member of the Afghan parliament, Hila Najibullah, peace activist, writer and analyst, Michael Kugelman, Asia Program Deputy Director and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us today in this important conversation. So, Maryam, uh, let's start with you. We initially thought uh, in this episode we will discuss the situation in the Helmand province, but things are changing so quickly in the country. So, as we woke up today, the headline was about Saripul in northern Afghanistan, where the provincial capital is uh, apparently on the verge of falling to the Taliban. At least this is what the, the news says. Uh, so, let's touch on this uh, a bit before we move on to Helmand. So, what's going on? What do you hear where you are about Saripul as we speak? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on today. It's an honor to be speaking with you all. Um, the situation is bad on the ground. Uh, people are scared. We have about 30,000, I think it's more than 30,000 a week of refugees leaving the country because of the situation. Again, the amount of human atrocities, the mm-hmm. human rights crimes that have been happening throughout the country, we can't even keep count of. There mm-hmm. are women who are being beaten or even killed. Mm-hmm for leaving their homes without a male uh, occupant with them. In Kandahar, we have stories coming out every day of one tribe in particular, the Achikzais, who've always been pro-democracy. They're being pinpointed where they live, brought out of their houses, and executed. Mm-hmm. I think there's around 900 people who've died from their tribe thus far. So in Shibaran, we know that General Dostum is back there. The morale of the soldiers are up. And after the Allah who aspires of the other night, our soldiers have an, a fresh morale and a fresh perspective. But it's still scary seeing that the world is going to abandon Afghanistan once again. Mm. In our previous conversations, we, we heard journalists from northern Afghanistan say that the most of the districts have already fallen to the Taliban in and around Saripul. We will talk about uh, Helmand in other parts of Afghanistan in a minute. So just one more point about uh, northern Afghanistan. So anything is being done at the moment as we speak to stop the Taliban is advanced there in, in Saripul? Because when you go on Twitter, like you hear this uh, wave of pleas coming out from people uh, who 
probably there on the ground and they are, you know, scared to death because of what's going on. I mean, uh, what, what I'm asking is like, is there anything being done at the moment on the ground as we speak? Yes, to stop? we have high ranking army officials who are on the ground there. We have Marshal jo- Dosum who who's gone back up to the north, who's taking control of the situation. Our our army is working vil- vigilantly. Our NDS is working intelligence sources. I just had a meeting with them. They're working vigilantly. We're trying to control the situation as best as we can. What what do they need? What they say about what we need right now is air support. What we're lacking is air support. During uh, Dr. Najib's government, we had probably the strongest air force in the region. It was a fact that we had the strongest uh, air force in the region. Uh, during the Mujahideen time, that was broken down and we were left with nothing. And what helps the most, especially in the districts, in the far located districts, is the air support. They're not able to take city centers that are m- more populated when we have the technology and the air support that we need. So that's where we're reaching out to the international community the most. That that was about the about Seripul in northern Afghanistan. Now coming to the south, it, equally consequential battle is taking place there in, in places like Kandahar, as you mentioned, and especially Hilmand and also in the west in Herat. So what's the highlight as we speak from Hilmand, from Lashkarga? You know, what I heard last was like uh, Afghan authorities were asking people to leave their cities ahead of their, I guess, a major offensive yeah. against the Taliban. So what is happening as we speak on the ground in Lashkarga? Uh, it's terrifying. We have some of our bravest generals there. General Sami Sadat is leading the way over there. He was the one who sent the message for the residents to leave if they know that the Taliban are around and to help the army as much as possible. But it's terrifying for them. They have no place to go. They're a very poor population in the country. And I think there's about 35,000 of them that are displaced, around 5,000 families in Lashkargah that are displaced. And just the other day, there was a little girl who was walking with her father. They stepped on a landmine and the father was killed and she was badly injured. And it seems like the world doesn't care. What we have to look at, though, is where these bombs are coming from, where these bullets are coming from. Every source of research shows that the shells left behind are all Pakistani shells. If we really want true peace, we have to look at what the foundational issue is here, where the funding and support comes from. In the, in, in the history of the world, there isn't an insurgency mm-hmm. such as the Taliban that can exist for over 20 years without a neighboring country's support. Yeah, certainly we are going to talk about those, those big picture issues that you are drawing our attention to, Maryam, just in a minute, just uh, now uh, kind of doing a reality check on the ground as to what, what's going on there. Um, so uh, as we speak, are we still afraid? of the provincial capital Lashkarga being at risk of falling to the Taliban? Yes, we are uh, afraid of it. They've surrounded it, but there's a huge fight. Within 20 minutes, it's changing one side to another. Within 20 minutes, it could be with the government or it could be back with the Taliban. Uh, so there's no say of where the fight, whose hands the fight is in. Uh, but the foundational issue is that we didn't have time to plan out what we were going to do whenever the withdrawal of the foreign troops happened. We were given no warning whatsoever. So this is expected. And in the situation that we're in right now, we're doing the best we can. I don't think any country in the world would be able to do what we're doing right now with the with the little amount of notice that we had beforehand. But I know I'm taking so much time uh, with you, Miriam. Uh, I, Michael and Hila, please feel free to jump in whenever you would like to. Just kind of trying to read uh, Miriam's brain who's on the ground there. So on the planning side, though, uh, Miriam, until recently, uh, not recently, just a few days ago, we were afraid of uh, Herat being on the verge of falling to the Taliban. It looks like the way we look at, at the situation today, maybe Herat is out of danger as we speak, at least in a better shape 
compared to Helmand Lushkarga. Uh, so what what I was wondering about is like how come the Afghan forces were more successful in defending Herat versus weaker in Lashkarga? How one would explain that? To be really bluntly honest with you, I really think it was the people of Herat having so much faith in their army. They just got up, they rose with them, and they gave them the army morale. Taliban have been in the south for many years, and it's been bleeding the people of Helmand dry for so many years. And the Taliban, uh, they know what they're doing in Helmand. They have a tactic in Helmand. They know how to make people starve to death to the point where they're willing to succumb to the Taliban out of fear, out of uh, poverty. It's also a mafia system that's in Helmand. One of the biggest drug trades that's going on in Afghanistan is happening in Helmand. So the situation in Helmand and Herat are very different. But I do believe that the situation in Helmand might change very soon, within the next few weeks. Okay, let me bring in uh, Hila. You, I mean, what what do you see uh, happening in southern Afghanistan with those Taliban offensive into the major cities? I mean, earlier we were seeing Taliban going district after districts. Now they are kind of focused on a couple of major cities there, like Kandahar, Herat, and we were talking about Lashkarga with Maryam. So, what do you see happening here? What uh, I see is the fact that the Taliban by no means have respected their agreement with the United States, the Doha Agreement. What I see is increased violence. What I see is an attack on the Afghan government, not only by the Taliban, by those who back them from Pakistan. We have, for example, you know, news that uh, there are fighters that are crossing the borders. There are interferences in terms of rockets. There are fighters that are killed in Afghanistan that return back to, to Pakistan. So what, what I see here is the fact that the peace process is dying out. There is, you know, the the people of Afghanistan are getting together and saying that they don't want an Taliban rule and they don't want them to come and take power. That's not acceptable to the Afghans. And the only way that the Taliban are trying, you know, to prove that they're an entity is through violence, through destruction, and to stepping on whatever they agreed and said, and and, and sort of going ahead full-fledged on an attack and just doing away with the political solution in Afghanistan. Yeah, certainly, uh, Hila, you you have rightly pointed out about the status of the peace talks as we speak now, or whether Taliban is uh, still loyal to the agreements that they, that, uh, they have signed with the United States. I mean, it, it looks like out of shelf at this moment, but we are going to get to that. Before that, let me also bring Michael here. Uh, Michael, I mean, we, our colleagues were talking about the, the, the crisis that that's being developed uh, there in southern Afghanistan. Like earlier, I was also listening to the uh, provincial assembly member from Kandahar say that the Taliban have killed, like Maryam also hinted, eight to nine hundred people over the past few days uh, in a, in a province. So I guess that also triggered the embassies from UK and the United States to call that that might be act of war crime by the uh, Taliban. So I think those developments are kind of noticed from where you are in Washington this year in, in, in London. When the Americans look into Afghanistan or the Westerners look into Afghanistan, especially the ones uh, who, who were on the ground as part of the NATO, what do they see happening as we speak in the country? So I think there is a shift uh, underway uh, here in Washington and other NATO capitals as well. 
I think that um, there is clear recognition now, or I fear that there had not been earlier, that the Taliban, contrary to what it says publicly, is indeed quite capable of and willing to commit horrific levels of atrocities and brutalities. I mean, the, the reportage has been very clear on the um, what exactly has happened, particularly in Lashkar Gah, in terms of what the Taliban has done to civilians, forcing people to leave their homes, using civilian homes as essentially new facilities to um, launch attacks on Afghan security forces. And the fact that you had several dozen Afghan civilians killed in a 24-hour period alone in Lashkar Gah earlier this week. I don't want to say that officials in Washington were not aware that the Taliban is capable of doing horrific things like these. But I think that events of recent days have made this very clear to officials here and beyond and has led to their shifting their tone and their and their themes of what they say in a way. Last week, when Secretary of State Blinken was in India, he said something very significant. He essentially said something to the effect that, you know, Afghanistan cannot be seen as a legitimate country. The Taliban cannot be seen as a legitimate player if these atrocities and brutalities happen. Now, previously, the message from Washington was that if the Taliban were to seize power by force, then the Taliban would lose the legitimacy that it had gained from its agreement with the U.S. last year. But now we're seeing an indication that you have influential leaders and political players that are willing to acknowledge that if the Taliban continues to commit large-scale atrocities, that could deprive it, that could cause it to lose legitimacy. And I think that's very, I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, would, would you allow me to follow up just on that? I mean, you, you are talking about these shift in view in Washington and about the Taliban. I mean, how is this shift looks like? Like, maybe my question should be like, how this shift in view is translating in reality, in practice? Well, I don't think it's, it has translated into uh, any type of change in practice yet. I think that we're seeing a shift in, in, in view and certainly in tone with public uh, rhetoric and messaging, but not in terms of policy. And indeed, the uh, the Biden administration continues to emphasize the importance of the intra-Afghan dialogue. It continues to emphasize the importance of supporting this very fragile peace process. And Ambassador Khalilzad had made uh, note of that just the other day. So I don't think this means that the U.S. is suddenly going to give up on the idea of pursuing uh, talks, negotiations between the sides. But they started but, bombarding the Taliban. What I'm saying is like that also not to happen as per the agreement to the Taliban. So they thought it, they are obliged to do that. Right. I, I think it's clear that um, the, the Doha deal has been violated in so many ways uh, in recent weeks and recent months, especially by the Taliban. Yeah. That um, obviously for, for the Taliban to enter cities may not have violated the text of the accord, but I'm sure that it violated the spirit as well as any unpublished appendix, appendices that, that accompanied it. And indeed, the fact that the U.S. is still willing to use airstrikes to assist Afghan forces pushing it to, to push out the Taliban, even as it's on its way out the door, that's, I think, is, is significant in of itself. And that is not to suggest that we're going to see the U.S. change attack. We're not going to see the Biden administration reverse its withdrawal order. Troops will not come back to Afghanistan, in my view, at least not during the, the Biden era. But it is interesting that the administration was willing to actually um, try to respond, use airstrikes to assist Afghan forces on the way out the door. I think it's a recognition of the fact that the peace process may not be dead, but it certainly is dead in the water. And I think that the idea here is to try to use whatever remaining time it has in Afghanistan to resort to mm. to, to, mil- to the use of military force. Well, so what about, what, about, uh, what about out of that remaining time? Like uh, September 1st, this is the time when all the U.S. or international troops would have withdrawn from Afghanistan. If the Taliban continues with the speed that it, it has so far, then what? 
then there will not be any engagement by the international community you know, in Afghanistan in the face of this uh, ongoing bloodshed. So well, very briefly, two points on that. One is that since so much of the U.S. withdrawal has been completed, I think, what is it, 90% of the withdrawal is complete now? I think that the U.S. military does not have the option of doing much more than what it's been doing over the last few days, the last few weeks, using uh, airstrikes. There's simply not much capability left to use military force to, to assist Afghan forces. The other point is that, you know, we need to remember that when the Biden administration announced this decision to leave Afghanistan, it was a decision that was not based on the um, threat posed by the Taliban insurgency, but it was made based on the threat of terrorism, and particularly externally focused terrorism, the risk that terrorism poses to the U.S. beyond Afghanistan. So, you know, I've said this before, including on this broadcast, I believe, that the optics are horrific of the U.S. completing the, this withdrawal at the very moment when the Taliban is waging this uh, this unprecedented offensive, threatening to take over cities. But that development is not going to change the U.S. view, the U.S. policy, because mm-hmm. it's focused on ISIS. It's focused on al-Qaeda and the threats posed by those types of groups that do pose more of a direct threat to the U.S. far beyond Afghanistan mm-hmm. than the Taliban would ever do. And I know that this is this is a reality it's very difficult to accept in afghanistan for good reason because Mm -hmm. it seems like the u.s is abandoning afghans to their fate as the taliban makes this this march into cities but unfortunately this is the policy that the administration decided to take Mm -hmm. i'd just like to add one point to michael um i agree with everything you said but the afghan people in the afghan nation we've existed for over five thousand years and we don't want foreign troops on our land forever what we do want to support we want a, a responsible withdrawal the issue the foundational issue is the fact that the taliban coming into mm-hmm. afghanistan doesn't just affect me and my brothers and sisters in Lashkargah and helmand and sarapol it actually affects the entire western democratic world we're fighting for democracy we're fighting against terrorism and uh, no one seems to care about what the foundational issue is. We have people in Pakistan right now who are lobbying and speaking on behalf of the, of the Taliban, saying, okay, if the Taliban come into power, we promise that I, uh, ISIS would not be allowed in Afghanistan, just like they promised that they would have a reduction in violence. They wouldn't attack the city centers. So the foundational issue is what the United States very well knows, that every single bullet comes from Pakistan. The Quetta Shora is there, the Pekawar Shora is there, the Haqqani network is there. And we're turning a blind eye to this country for I don't know what reason, who is best friends with China and Russia as well, why we're turning a blind eye to Pakistan and their, their human rights atrocities that they're committing in Afghanistan. And because a Muslim nation is attacking another Muslim nation, You're not hearing any of the Muslim nations standing up for Afghanistan. No one cares about Afghanistan. Who we look to at this point are the people who are standing up for democracy and who are against terrorism to stand by our side. And we don't need your boots on the ground, but we do need funding. We do need air support. We do need support in not taking all of our most talented people out of the country and scaring people. We don't need the fear mongering to happen anymore. And so from the West and from the United States, especially and from the UK, we need support because this in the long run will affect the US, the UK, European countries, democratic countries, Mm. because beating the biggest army in the world is a huge win for terrorists all over the world. So this is just the beginning. Again, thank you. Mm. I think yeah, th- there's a point, Michael, uh, for you. Uh, please uh, jump in. Also, just add into what it, uh, Hila just said. 
we again and again hear from the Western leaders and President Biden and others that they, they are committed to help the Afghan government, Afghan people. Then what do they mean when they say they are committed to helping? And also the point about the Pakistan, that, that's also important, Michael, if you want to address. Uh, Hila can go ahead. I'll come in a bit later. I don't want to keep her from uh, from coming no, back. No, before before Michael continues, I mean, to, to just holistically maybe respond, I, I would like to add one more point to, to the discussion. And Mr. Zalmay Khalilzad gave an interview with uh, Voice of America the other day, two, three days ago. And there he mentions um, regarding the peace talks and the reason I keep in, insisting to come back because alternative to the peace process is exactly what we are seeing. But we all are responsible as to where we stand in terms of the chaos that's going on in Afghanistan. It's not only one uh, stakeholder versus the other. So the reason I wanted to discuss this is that in his interview, what he mentions that the reason the peace process is not going ahead is because the Taliban wanted a new Islamic government and and they wanted a change in the constitution. And once that is resolved, then the peace process can succeed. So we see that the pressure is so high right now on the Afghan government to either give up and allow the system or in their institutions to to dissolve itself for for the Taliban to come and and then declare a ceasefire and have peace or for them to attack and continue with destruction and violence to take over. So what we see here, if we really for peace for Afghanistan and the Afghan people and also of the region, because let's not forget that the menace in Afghanistan can affect the whole region with, with Pakistan, India, China, Russia being nuclear countries, you know, the mess that we're going to be in, it's going to affect the whole world. So if one country leaves irresponsibly, there are others who will come and play the game. And I just wanted to clarify mm. this. I've said this and mentioned this before, and I'm going to say it again here. The The situation that Afghanistan is, is right now is so difficult where they have to, um, in both ways, let the current system and the values that they stood for to completely go in order for Taliban to bring some peace. And the people of Afghanistan in the past three, four days with clear and loud voice have declared that they don't want this from the Taliban. Okay. So what are you going to do? You're going to impose a deal, a peace deal, which uh, the Afghan people don't want? Is that what the the the, the new diplomacy going to be? No, we need to have clear vision of how we're going to go for regional and global peace in terms of avoiding competitive takeover of Afghanistan by different powers. Um, mm. I, I just end with that and then um, perhaps we can discuss it further later yeah. on. Thank yeah, you. We, we, will, we will. Sorry, the earlier point was raised by Maryam. I guess I confused uh, Maryam with Hila. So Michael, yeah, your point and we really need to move on. And we have a couple of other points to talk about. So please respond appreciate if that would be briefly. Yeah, Maria made, an, of course, a very important point about the Pakistan factor here. And I think that um, certainly, indeed, I mean, if you look at the literature, the academic literature, any case of a of an insurgency, an insurgent group operating in the post-World War II era, 
whenever such a group has enjoyed a cross-border sanctuary, it has never lost. I mean, there's literally never been a case where an insurgency has that type of safe haven across the border is never lost. And obviously, we're looking at this situation with uh, with the Taliban in Pakistan. And certainly, the other types of support, the, the medical facilities that Taliban fighters can use, the fact that um, Taliban uh, members and their families can be in Pakistan, clearly, this is all a big part of the problem. But you know, to my mind, I think it's not necessarily the issue of military support from Pakistan to the Taliban that, that concerns me as much. I'm not sure if that's happening on as high a level as, as some might suggest, but I think the political support, which is indirect, but the political support coming from Pakistanis for the Taliban, the fact that you really don't hear, at least anymore, you don't hear Pakistani officials being critical of the Taliban. You don't hear them condemning Taliban violence. You don't really hear that type of messaging anymore. And I think indirect directly that sort of conveys a certain type of approval for what for what the Taliban is doing. That is clearly very troubling, uh, to put it mildly. Okay, um, so as the war continues, the humanitarian crisis is developing. Earlier, Miriam was hinting uh, on that. Uh, in the meantime, sadly, the battle seems to be expanding as the Taliban militants are on a full-blown offensive on all fronts, west and east and north. So in the face of that, government seems to be clearly struggling on how to cope with the situation, both on the battleground and as well as on how to deal with the humanitarian crisis. So what the future holds as to where things are headed and what can be done about it? Let's continue the conversation talking about these and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate that today on the PAC file podcast. I'm joined by Maryam Suleiman Khil, member of the Afghan parliament, Hila Najibullah, peace activist, writer, and analyst, Michael Kugelman, Asia program deputy director and senior associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the show and Radio for Pretty Liberties media manager here in Washington, D.C. We are discussing the latest situation around the Taliban's offensive in Afghanistan. So, about the government response, um, yeah, of course, there are a lot to talk about what role the international community can play, what kind of role they have played in the past and what role they can play going forward. But speaking of uh, what it is at the moment, the ground reality, uh, north, south, west, uh, on all the fronts, Taliban are kind of on move, offensive, and government seems to be kind of struggling on how to respond. You know, I I really want to have someone to speak uh, on behalf of the government as to what they are doing to to stop this advance of the Taliban. Some did not respond, and for some of them, uh, there was a scheduling conflict, so at the end, they could not join. So in the absence of them, uh, Miriam, perhaps you could uh, help us to understand what is the thinking in the government on to how to stop the Taliban's advance? Do they have any strategy and how the strategy looks like? You know, when I was searching about this topic over the past couple of days, I have watched, and earlier I told this to Michael, I watched more President Ghani's videos over the past two or three days than I have ever watched. So he is talking about a number of issues. One is a six-month plan of some sort. What's in this plan, Miriam? Do do you know anything into the inside of this plan, the strategy, the future strategy that they are thinking about on how to stop Taliban's offensive? Miriam, are you with us? Yeah, it appears she dropped off. 
Okay, Miriam, we'll join. Uh, Hila, do you want to jump in here? Is there anything you would like to add in this point? Like, I'm just thinking about the what the government is doing. Yes, we have lots of points about what the international community could have done properly or what they might be able to do going forward. But about the Afghan government, what they are doing or what kind of strategy that they are applying in the face of this offensive by the Taliban? Well, as, as, as an analyst, what I could uh, see is that it's um, extremely squeezed uh, and, um, you know, they are trying to fight and defend the offensive of Taliban. However, they don't have a systemic approach um, in terms of defending the areas that are under attack or the fact of the matter that some of these districts are, are taken. Uh, Mariam uh, said initially um, about the fact that, you know, they do need air support. Uh, What I see is that during the 20 years of uh, the U.S. uh, occupation of uh, Afghanistan, the ANDSF, although was supported and the budget came from the U.S., it did not allow the Air Force to be uh, developed and and created in a way that it could be self-sufficient. And so also the way the army was trained and the way the army was, was functioning was such that it um, uh, it only the special forces could really fight, but the majority were mostly a defensive force. And these are issues that when you're at war, uh, that could cost you, because that's a different strategy in maintaining a military than today when, when Afghan government is at war, uh, and you have to be in combat constantly. So um, I think there are a lot of shortcomings because the 20 years of Afghan NDSF training and the vision and the strategy and the budget was determined on, on different objectives and goals than, than what it is today from, from my understanding. And therefore, I think the Afghan government is in a very difficult situation right now. Mm-hmm. Michael, what, what are your thoughts in terms of the, the way the Afghan authorities, government and special forces or the security force are responding in the face of this offensive? How you ev- evaluate the performance that they have shown so far? Well, I do think that the um, the apparent success, at least in the immediate term, to keep the Taliban from going further in Herat is something that deserves a lot of credit. But I think that we also have to recognize the fact that it was non-government entities, particularly some of these militias or resistance mm-hmm. groups, that played a big role in pushing out Taliban. And of course, it's preliminary. This is obviously still a very volatile situation in Herat. Things could change. But for now, there was some success. That suggests that there are limitations to what Afghan security forces can do. And also the fact that you did have some assistance from the U.S. military with airstrikes. Mm-hmm. That, of course, is will not be there for all that much longer. So I think it's, it's sort of encouraging, but also discouraging at the same time. But looking at what's happened in, uh, in Lashkar Gah, where the situation is, is so different, clearly uh, ANSF have a much bigger challenge there on their hands, just because, as was mentioned earlier, I mean, this is the heartland of the Taliban. These are areas that the Taliban know so well, is based there originally, and it's going to be so much more difficult for Afghan security forces to be able to turn the tide, so to speak. Just one final point very briefly, I 
sort of clarified myself before when I was talking about Pakistan. I was not suggesting that Pakistan has not provided military support to the Taliban, but my point was that I don't think there's clear indications that it's providing anywhere near as much such support as it had in previous years, and especially going back to the 90s. The Taliban, unfortunately, has been able to seize and recover a lot of heavy weaponry from Afghan security forces, as well as, I believe, in some cases, from NATO forces as well. So that enables them to really strengthen their military capacities and war fighting capacities without unique dependence or even significant dependence on anything that Pakistan might offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly Afghans uh, on the ground, certainly they have a different view of Pakistan. Like when you watch uh, President Ghani's videos or speeches or other officials, they are clearly tying this Taliban offensive to the support that they, they say they get from Pakistan. So, you know, uh, of course, it, there's a history into what their thinkings are. But know what to do with this uh, with this situation. I mean, how to respond to this? I mean, earlier, I think, Hila, you mentioned like the chantings that are coming out from different cities, chantings of Allahu Akbar, apparently against the Taliban. And I also hear leadership uh, in the Afghan government calling to local leaders to mobilize their you know, supporters to save their cities and towns from the Taliban's offensive. So is it something that can, can make any difference? Is it, a, is it the right strategy, right move, Hila? Um. What um, what I think must be done is at different levels. Once again, we we need to. Uh, unfortunately, the the, car, the current situation in Afghanistan has kind of frozen, uh, so to say, or um, has put the, the government in in a in a very defensive situation where um, a lot of things are maybe not clearly thought the way from somebody outside like us. Uh, we we do that. I think what what needs to be done is is the fact that countries involved in the region and also internationally and those facilitators or so-called mediators or assumed mediators need to ask exactly what do they want? What do they want the outcome of the current situation in Afghanistan to be? Do they want to see continued uh, bloodshed and and, and, um, civil war? Do they want regime change? Do they want the Taliban to come and take over? Do they want to divide Afghanistan and Lebanonize it? What is it that they have in mind? Because the problem is that you have the United States, Britain and in EU, you know, saying different things. Then you have the Russians and Chinese who have been very clear as to where they stand with the Taliban. And then you have the Afghan people who ha- are refusing to give in to the Taliban. And I, as an Afghan, don't see the fact that you can give in holistically the power to a militant group who have shown, despite of all they said in, in, in Doha in the past two, three months, how, uh, by taking districts and all, how they're violating their accords or their their, their words, how they're d- destroying buildings, power cables, uh, education centers, clinics, killing children, women, forcing women to get married. I mean, if this is Sharia law, I, I don't know what, what the rest of the Islamic world would say about this. So we all know in reality and practice that what they do is not what they say. So is that 
what the region and the world involved in Afghanistan want, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to allow this to happen, uh, because the Afghans clearly don't want the Taliban back. Mm -hmm. And that must be a clear message to the world. Yeah. And also the current situation cannot sustain the way it is. Like there are, you know, clearly so much of a bloodshed, so much of a humanitarian crisis, so much pain that the types of push that uh, Hila, you are hinting, uh, and also earlier, Miriam, that, uh, I mean, Something needs to be done so that this stops. Um, Absolutely. I mean, we're already in the past one and a half month, we already have a million internally displaced person. Add that to uh, 11 million internally displaced persons since 2000. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The number of Afghans leaving Afghanistan. We, of course, getting visas are getting more and more difficult. And yet Europeans want to curb migration and they don't want the refugees and asylum seekers to to come. So how is this going to work if you do not address, you know, with a clear, rational mind, what could the future of a country that can involve regional conflicts could have global implications mean for us as a whole, not mm. not only Afghanistan, but humanity at large. Mm. And then, therefore, the politics within here in Europe, where I'm sitting, for example, and where it revolves around mm. migration yeah. or in the United States when it comes to the rivalry with Russia or China. Yeah. Yeah. Mohammed, if I may, sorry, just very quickly, I, I think that it's important to emphasize just how important this point is that, that, that Hila just made, that you know, we could talk all we want about where things are going with the fighting yeah. and, you know, what this means for the peace talks. But I think that the refugee issue is the the first big crisis that is going to emerge from the U.S. withdrawal. And it's already emerged. And the fact that you know, the, the countries that Afghan ref, refugees have, fl- have tended to flee to the most over the years, Pakistan and Iran, are not at all interested in providing support to these refugees. And they've been very public about this, especially Pakistan. So this means that this will become a global crisis. It's not just going to be a regional crisis, the, the refugee issue. And I think that's why it's so important to discuss and also for, you know, governments like the U.S. And, and other NATO countries to start thinking about a policy just because it's not going to be contained to to the region. You're going to, I think there's a very real risk that you could have major outflows of refugees and they won't be able to go to the to places they tended to go into the past just because of the different policies in Pakistan and Iran. Okay. Now, Miriam is saying that electricity went off. Perhaps she might be able to join. Yeah, Hello? she did. Yeah, she did. Great. Hey, Miriam, we are almost towards the end of our discussion today. But, um, you know, we were just talking about what needs to be done now after this stage. Uh, we understand we heard you and Hila say clearly that Afghans don't like what they are seeing at the moment. They, they want this bloodshed to end. They want this humanitarian crisis to end. I mean, how this can end? where the hope is as an afghan as a, a, a parliamentarian as a, one of the local leaders where do you see where the hope is how it's going to end i have hope and i have faith in the women leaders of the world i have hope and faith in all the people who saw what democracy brought into their countries i have hope and faith in my own people who saw that 20 years ago they weren't allowed to get an education they weren't allowed to leave their homes they weren't allowed to think freely. I have hope and faith in these people to stand with us at the end of the day. I have hope and faith in the people who are against terrorism to stand with us. We are all human beings and Afghans are human beings as well. I do believe that there are people who are turning a blind eye when it comes to 
where the root of terrorism stems from. Why were the Americans here as long as they were? What did they learn? And if you speak to most Americans, they'll tell you the truth. They know the truth. I just don't know why no one takes action on the truth. It's something that is going to be looked back on in history about how the bullets, how the madrasas, how the trainings, how the hospitals that take care of them. We have friends in uh, Pakhtunkhwa and on the other side of the Durand line who are reporting to us every day about how many different funerals are happening there. So if we really want an, a long-lasting troop peace in not just this region but the entire world when it comes to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, it would be to shut down the madrasas, to shut down the, the shoras in Pakistan. It would be to put sanctions on certain generals and certain military figures in Pakistan and put pressure to stop the funding and harboring of terrorists. That's the only way that we can see true peace. Yeah, uh, but that's something that you can hope for to happen in long term, Maryam, though Pakistanis will not agree uh, to what uh, your interpretation of the situation is. Anyhow, that's, that's a different story. Let's not go there for the sake of this conversation. But, you know, um, earlier you cut off uh, in, in your absence. What we were talking about is that the country is bleeding now. Time is desperate and desperate measures are needed to stop it. So what is the actual concrete strategy of the Afghan government to stop it? The Afghan government, from what I'm privileged to hear, is that they're pushing for protecting our citizens as much as possible, pushing back the Taliban as much as possible, stopping the human rights atrocities as much as possible, and at the same time trying to push for the peace talks to begin as soon as possible. Uh, the issue is that we want, the Afghan people want, from my constituency, they want an elected leader. We want changes brought to our constitution. We welcome that. We welcome the discussion. But to come in and just say, okay, I want lion's share of the, the government and all control over all these people without telling us how these people have changed and who's given them the right to rebrand themselves is what's dumbfounding. So the government is doing a lot to try to promote peace and to try to sit down with the Taliban. But we have to question why is the world allowing a terrorist organization to rebrand themselves and re-legitimize themselves after not letting women go to school, mm -hmm. after having public executions? Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Um, Michael, do you think there's any future for the, the peace talks after this stage or the documents were signed with, with the Taliban? I mean, what the future holds for those stuff now after this stage? Yeah, it's called the inter-Afghan dialogue dead in the water for now. I think that if the Taliban actually came back and sat down in negotiations now, it would only be to try to make the Afghan government make really major concessions to the point where it would essentially be trying to get the Afghan government to surrender, which clearly has no interest in doing. I think that all we can hope for is that in time, in the coming months, this is a, a big if, the Afghan forces will be able to somehow regain some momentum, either by taking taking back some of the territory that it lost, or somehow putting enough pressure on the Taliban that the Taliban doesn't have as much of the upper hand in talks than it than it does now. But no, bottom line is I fear that the Doha process is just it's not dead, but it's it's pretty close, and I really hope that. Um, we'll be able to see that change through some different process or something like that. But it's not going to be immediate. And of course, in the meantime, it's, it's civilians in Afghanistan that will, that will pay the, bigger, the biggest price. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, we have to conclude the conversation here. I guess we will come back uh, to it. If I could just add uh, one more minute of your time, uh, I would like to say that, um, you know, uh, Michael mentioned about 
Europeans, NATO and, and um, DC to think about a policy that they could have. The policy that they could have, because we, we do have major UN member states and Security Council states involved in, in Afghan matters, is to have under the UN auspices a meeting, an international meeting where they could talk of Afghanistan becoming a neutral country. And in that sense, everybody's contradictory interests could be resolved. And then we could end the bloodshed for Afghans and we could take it forward from there onwards. Uh, but uh, this remains, I guess, just one policy you know, proposal that needs to be looked at. Uh, that's all from me. Thank mm. you. Okay. Okay. Terrific. I completely agree with Hila John as well. I second her opinion. Thank you. Okay. Let's end the conversation, this conversation here. And uh, hopefully we will catch up again uh, at some point, perhaps with a better news to discuss then. So with this, thank you very much, Mariam Suleiman Khil, member of the Afghan parliament, Hila Najibullah, peace activist, writer and analyst, Michael Kuhlman, Asia program deputy director and senior associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. Thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today in this important conversation. And this is it from me, Mohammed Tahir, Radio Free Radio Liberty's media manager and host of the APAC file, a joint podcast series of Radio Free Radio Liberty and the Wilson Center. Please join us in two weeks. Until then, bye-bye.